Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Over these days, you idiots are gonna laugh yourselves to death! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. That's going to bring a visit to the mound. And Horton wasting no time. He's going to the Duke. The Duke leads the league in saves, strikeouts per inning, and hit batsman. This guy threw at his own kid in a father-son game. Watch this. Taylor is pointing to the bleachers. He's calling his shot. Nobody's done this since Babe Ruth in the 32 World Series. Hayes leads from second as Duke takes his stretch. The pitch. Look out! Down goes Taylor. All right, and that's a clip from the great movie, the great comedy, Major League. The reason we're showing... Not showing a clip, I guess. Playing a clip from major from major league is because we have a guest today, and we're going to talk about a recent article that he did on baseball beaning codes. Fiery yeah, Cushman. You know, so Fiery Cushman is here. Uh, Fiery's a psychologist at Brown University, and uh, we Fiery and I are both currently attending a conference on social and personality psychology in New Orleans, and we are in my hotel room. Which looks this hotel is is nice, but from the outside it looks like a slave plantation home. It's like this weird Greek revival thing. What what, what hotel? Le Pavillon. Yeah. I, I'm trying to say it like they say it. Um, and uh, and in New Orleans, Tamler, you rightfully warned me that recording a podcast in the morning in New Orleans was probably a mistake because I tried I mean, to tell you. <laughs> you warned me, and I was like, well, I don't know there's, what you're talking about. I've been to millions of conferences. And, there's uh, no going to sleep in New Orleans. No, let's just say that Fiery might just take the lead. <laughs> so so I, I want to say Fiery is one of my absolute favorite people, so I'm really happy to, that he's that he's on this podcast with us. Well, I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks to both of you for having me. And I, I'm also going to say that Fiery has absolutely no association with the filth that comes out of our mouth. Fiery is a right. young, young, good, morally good, upstanding scholar who has to, unfortunately, because we're we're sort of like on the same circuit of conferences. Um, he, he has to hear me say crazy shit all the time and 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 try to. But he's not corruptible. I mean, he's, he's not, I, I, he's, I've hung up, hung out with them at a couple of conferences too. He's just not. He's incorruptible. He's like no what way. I imagine Jesus would be like. Is this really what you invited me? <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I have to say, we want is, like is a that, benediction from you yeah. of, of some kind. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm just talking about you before you guys start talking about baseball, since I I think I'm aware that that is a sport that people play. And the reason that I'm aware of it is because when I was a kid, and uh, during large portions of the year, when I would try to watch something like on Fox, there would be a baseball game on. And then, like, I'd wait a couple of hours and turn back to Fox, and there would still be a baseball game on. And uh, so I'm, I'm vaguely aware of this as a, as a sport. And apparently it's a sport where people stand around each other and occasionally hit Can, can hit you just stop? Uh, I'm just going to stop you right there. Baseball is a tremendous <laughs> and extremely exciting and suspenseful sport. And you're just – all you're doing is making a fool out of yourself right now by, <laughs> by trying to – here's what you're doing. You're trying to bash baseball like a woman tries to bash baseball. Uh, it's just a bunch that, of guys I, I sitting around to be a woman, spitting, sir. touching their balls, <laughs> touching their dicks. Like, I mean – 
you got to do a little better than that anyway. Uh, You're listen, also just I've been not to a... baseball games. I'll, I'm just going to say this. I've been to baseball games, and they're fun when you go. I, I just don't I, – I just – to me, the most also interesting what a thing woman to come out of uh, the most interesting thing to come out of baseball in in years is Fiery's paper. <laughs> and so I'm I'm really happy that there are apparently sort of putative moral behaviors in in the game of baseball because because that's something as opposed to just doing nothing. And I'll are just you f- are you a fan, Fiery? Can we let Fiery talk for a second? Well, yeah, but I'm I'm kind of mystified by all of this ragging on the women's perspective on baseball because actually I had exactly David's perspective on the sport until my wife got me involved in it. She so she's a lifelong uh, Sox fan. And uh, there we go. You married a good woman. Years, there you go. So over the past ten years, I guess I've uh, I've I've been bitten by it too. So you see that you say, it, it just shows. Dave, that you know the danger of stereotyping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I brought that shit up. <laughs> I hope you take that to heart. <laughs> so you know, uh, Fiery uh, was part of this. We did this uh, pre-conference here on justice and morality, and you bring up stereotypes. But our keynote speaker was Susan Fisk, who's who's sort of made a career of studying um, stereotypes and and in particular gender stereotypes. So I'm going to take this audio clip to her and sh- and. When she hears your voice, just a little tear will come down her eye, and uh, <laughs> a and single tear that no progress has been made. <laughs> All right, uh, so why don't you talk about what or fiery maybe intro what this paper is about? Because apparently Tamler is hugely excited to be your fan about this paper. Well, I got it. So this paper actually was inspired by a talk that I heard Tamler give uh, a number of years ago, and he. Like in the 80s? Back in the 80s. Before Major League. That's how I date events. (laughs) So, uh, no, but Tamler Tamler made this really interesting point about cultures of honor. There's not so many today, but historically uh, around the world you find this phenomenon of cultures of honor where you have people organized in tight clan groups. You could think about it like the mafia or like the Hatfields and McCoys. And uh, there's this funny perspective on or sort of practice of uh, punishment where say that you kill my brother and we're in different clans, an appropriate response would be for my brother to kill your brother, right? So you're talking about retaliating uh, against somebody who had no uh, responsibility, as we would think about it, for the original transgression. Or no direct uh, role in the... No, no, yeah, no direct yeah, causal no. role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what, but the, the, what makes that person an appropriate target is that they're another male from the same clan. They're, they're part of that same group. Uh, and this is what can allow, you know, if you think about a mafia movie or you think about the Hatfield and the McCoys where you have these cycles of retributive violence that go on and on, it can kind of spread that way because anybody in the other clan is a legitimate target. If anybody doesn't get the Hatfield and McCoy reference, that's a famous, famous blood feud. From what was it? Like, was it the early, was it the late 1800s? I think, well, it was in the 1800s. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Yeah, and it, but- <laughs> for some reason, it, it just became this American lore. You know, when I first heard about it was, uh, it was like, I think, a Flintstones episode or a Jetsons. I don't know what, but it was like some reference to the Hatfields and McCoys. And uh, and that's just how how I learned that they were two families that feuded with each other. It started over a pig, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, there was like one that's pig. Not, you, you know, know that's tramp- no way to talk about a woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was, there was a dispute over who owned a pig, and at the end of twenty years, twenty people were dead. So, uh, but but so Tamler made. So this did really- they ever find out who actually owned the pig? <laughs> Well, the, uh, Wikipedia has an opinion, but <laughs> but Tamler made this really interesting point that, in a way, if you were hoping that it would just be that that across cultures there would be one concept of what moral responsibility is and how it works, the phenomenon of a culture of honor might challenge that because it looks like our modern Western conception of moral responsibility is just fundamentally irreconcilable with the, this phenomenon of vicarious punishment uh, of, of me killing the perpetrator's brother that's practiced in a culture of honor. Because according to the basic Western tradition, you'd only retaliate against somebody if they had played a direct role in causing harm. 
Right. If they had some sort of control. Is are there stronger intuitions about your responsibility to be to enact justice? So if somebody harms your sister, is there a sense that it's obligatory that you ought to take revenge? Well, I think that is is defined largely by whether there's a strong state uh, that can that can sort of uh, take on the responsibility of meeting out revenge itself. So what you find is in uh, in cultures that have a strong state and where the state has reach and control over people's lives, like in uh, in most of the U.S. today. Uh, there isn't a sense that it, that if my sister were harmed, that I would have personal responsibility to seek out revenge. The state's right. doing it for me. But well, it, fire. I mean, we've talked about this. I, I'm not so sure that's. I, I mean, this is this is a place where maybe you and I disagree. Uh, I, I think that you know this is this is a matter of degree. And if somebody harms my sister, my daughter, for God's sakes, my wife, I do have separate from what's going to happen to this person within the criminal justice system or whatever that I do have some sort of responsibility to make that right. Whether I can do it or not is a. I think you're right about that. And, uh, and there, you know, a wonderful uh, write-up of this was done by Jared Diamond in The New Yorker a number of years back. And he talked yeah. about a, a woman, an American woman, whose father was killed, I believe, in Israel. Uh, and she went out of her way to try to find – that My paper that you're referring to, <laughs> I took a lot of inspiration from her, from her book. Yeah. That's right. And um, – but she, you know, she said at the end of the day – she just felt, you know, her friends were asking her, why are you taking this on your shoulders? You know, the Israeli government will deal with it. The American government will deal with it. The police will deal with it. Why do you feel like this is your problem? And she said, I just feel like at the end of the day, I need to send the message, you don't fuck with the Blumenfelds. <laughs> and so I, I, think you're, I think you're right that it's on a spectrum. At the same time... I quote it, that in my paper, actually. You can't fuck with the Blumenfelds. I love that. It's my favorite thing. And at the, when I gave the talk, I said... It's it's extra funny because if there's a name of <laughs> that you would think you probably could fuck with, <laughs> if, if, like Blumen, so, Blumenfeld might be uh, one of those names. I'm I'm and, keeping silent. <laughs> um. All right, can we get back to the? Sorry. Well, so so what you know what we wanted to do in this paper was see a couple of things. First of all, is it really true that we can't find any evidence for vicarious punishment in a modern Western context? And I think as Tamler just hinted, you know, uh, some of these things feel like they're on a spectrum and we should be able to find some kind of trace of it. But second, if we can, if we can find it, then we can study it and we can ask one question in particular. Is it really the case that when I killed, say, Dave's brother in retaliation for him killing my brother, that I have a fundamentally different concept of moral responsibility in which Dave's brother is actually responsible? Or does responsibility have nothing to do with it? Is it that I understand that if I'm going to protect my family, I've got to do something. Maybe I can't get to Dave, so the next best thing is his brother. I don't think his brother is responsible. I just I just have to do what I can to, to try to sort of um, to protect myself. Right. Yet another wonderful Unforgiven quote, right? Exactly, right. So the quote from Unforgiven, which again comes from Tamler's uh, uh, paper, uh, Clint Eastwood's character says, deserves got nothing to do with it, right? Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. kind of the idea. So what we, you know, we thought a lot about this and, and we looked at various contexts where we thought this might apply. And the one that turned out to work really well came from baseball. So in, in, uh, in the American uh, sport of baseball, of course, you have a pitcher. He's throwing a very hard ball at about 90 miles an hour at a batter and it's it's actually because because it's rare for somebody who doesn't play baseball at all to get an intuition about this if if the first time you sit in front of a batting cage yeah and you exactly. set the setting to like i don't even they're low they're really low settings 70 you can set it to like 70 miles an hour which is like what a knuckleball pitcher will pitch right and it but, is it's enough to like shirk away as a as a reflex because it if you get hit by one of those things it's there's a problem you have, there's a reason they wear helmets as i mean before they wore helmets a guy yeah. got killed you know it hit yeah. him in the head this is why they call it beaning you know your head your bean 
Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, and a guy got killed. They started wearing helmets. But even today, it is routine for people seasons to end if they get hit in the elbow, get hit on the wrist. It's going to easily break a bone. Uh, so it's a serious thing to be hit by a baseball, and uh, and yet it it gets used in strategic ways. You know, sometimes a pitch just goes loose and it, and. Uh, and it hits somebody accidentally, but sometimes they'll try to back up the batter off the plate so that he's not in such an advantageous position by pitching inside towards him. Right, right. So if the batter is crouching, they call it crowding the plate. If he's, it's it's considered disrespectful to the pitcher to be, and he's getting an advantage, right. which, which the pitcher yeah. doesn't want him. To I'll have. give you the best example of this, which was in the 2004, the great and and fiery. You should know this if you're a Sox fan. 2004 Red Sox Yankees. And the Japanese player uh, Matsui. Matsui. He he was he, he was batting like five eighty, and he was just crowding over the plate, and 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 we couldn't get him out. He was killing us, and this was when we were down three three zero, and then we we somehow scrapped out that fourth win, and then Pedro was pitching in game five, and I think the turning point of that series, Pedro just throws. Right at his head, knocks down Matsui, and he was like two for nineteen for the rest of the series. I mean, it was oh, awesome. Wow. So he, it was he, just he got like shook, as we would say. He, so he was. You, you really think it rattled him? I think it rattled him, and I think it got you know. You it, the the worst thing for a pitcher is if a batter is too comfortable at the plate. And one thing Pedro was great at. This was when his skills as a pitcher was were diminishing. But one thing that he was great at was not letting players get too comfortable. And he had just had enough of 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 Matsui just feeling like every time he walked up to the plate, he was going to get at least a double. So he just <laughs> threw at his head, and so- that's why we love Pedro. <laughs> so can I ask a question? Um, when, because it, it, it gets to the to the question of responsibility, or, or at least in the strict sense that we t- we tend to use the term, is there retaliation when it's obvious that it was an accidental? So when the pitch yeah. was wild, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You can. So I mean, in a situation like that, and and the situation, the the sort of circumstances help you interpret Pedro's pitch as intentional. But there's also situations where, say, the bases are loaded. And you hit a guy. Well, every time you hit a batter, he gets to advance. And the the you know, in the end of the day, that you're scoring a run that wasn't worth it. And so, right. in a situation like that, you're pretty sure it was an accident. But if you really hit the guy, you know, <laughs> yeah. right in a vulnerable place, and he's limping over to first base, uh, you can be sure that the other team's going to turn around and hit back. But they do take that into account, Fiery. That's a good point. They do point. take it into like, account. They, they yeah. take into account the situation. And if it's a really close game and a player gets hit, they also are more likely to think that it's an accident, you know, if there's no bad blood between the teams. That's uh, right. That's right. That's and, right. Here's, but here's and often, really- you know, you have to if, – if, if they determine it's an accident, sometimes they do feel like they have to retaliate. But there are different kinds of retaliation. There is the ones that you kind of throw a batting practice fastball at the guy's, you know, you try to hit him in his, his butt, exactly, yeah. and that hurts the least, ironically. Can I, can I ask, is it me, or I've never seen a pitcher sort of put up his hand to apologize, um, which, which I would think that if you did it by accident, you would sort of want to signal that you did it by accident. But it seems, is it... Is it true that that that, pe- that pitchers just don't they just stay quiet? I mean, it's such a psychological battle between a pitcher and a batter. I think it's one of the things that, uh, unless you watch baseball, you miss out on the kind of psychodrama that's playing out. Uh, that's right. Because you you need such uh, tremendous reflexes and mental control that if another guy's throwing you somehow. Uh, it's really just it, it's going to confer a tremendous advantage, and so I don't think people do apologize because they don't want it to be in their head that right. they possibly could have done something wrong. Right. right? They're just focused on executing their part of the game, you know. But so the three of us have been dancing around this issue because we're familiar with it. But I just want to make it clear what the norm is that we're talking about. So the so the idea is, and this is especially the case in in the Ameri- the two different leagues of baseball, the American League, pitchers don't come up to bat. So let's say that uh, Tamler's a pitcher, and uh, he throws a ball at me and hits me. And now Tamler's never going to come up to bat. So the point is, there's no way to get direct revenge on Tamler. That's just a constraint of the game. And so let's say Dave is the pitcher on my team. If there's going to be retaliation, it's going to have to be Dave 
hitting one of Tamler's teammates. And so it's just like the brothers, right? You're talking about the guy who got hit isn't getting the retaliate isn't, isn't performing the retaliation, and the guy who delivered the hit isn't the target of the retaliation. Uh, and so it has that same kind of vicarious or collective feel to it, and that to us looked like a kind of you know on a small scale an instantiation of these norms of a culture of honor in a Western context. So you called people's intuitions about these situations? Yeah, well, what we did, and this was done with uh, with Chaz Livy and Anthony Derwin, and it was really the two of them who did the, the, the dirty work here, went out to Red Sox games, to Yankees games, stood outside the park and polled fans. And our first question, do you know, it might be that baseball players do this, but nobody thinks it's morally acceptable. So we just asked fans, is that kind of retaliation morally acceptable? And what we find is that about half of them think it is. And uh, Were there gender differences by any chance? You know, I'm not sure that we collected gender data in this mm-hmm. study. We kept it really short and sweet because mm-hmm. we just wanted to, you know, we didn't want to bug people. Yeah, and if you don't have a theory fun. about it, then. My theory would be that uh, women would be, if anything, more in favor. Uh, I mean, it's really fascinating in the, in the ethnographic evidence. And this holds across a number of different cultures, like... You can look in Montenegro and you can look in Iceland and you find, you know, centuries ago, you find the the very same thing in both. So the retribution is always carried out by men. You would never, ever, ever kill a woman in a clan in retaliation for something that a man did. But the women are intimately involved yeah. Essentially, by goading the men. Yeah, you're just going to sit there. Right. You're just yeah, exactly. Sit there. <laughs> men, I mean, it's not. You think about this as a very hot-blooded thing, and sometimes it is, but it also plays out over years. And the men are under no illusions about what's going to happen if they strike. There's going to be a strike back, and they're likely to die, and they're not eager to do it. And the women actually play this extremely important role in maintaining the norm because every single night at dinner, you know, there's this wonderful quote from Christopher Bohm's book, Blood Revenge, about a mother and the father had been killed in a blood feud when the kids were just babies. And she knew when they grew up, it was their responsibility to seek revenge. <laughs> and she kept a glass jar of the father's blood and she would take it out at dinner and put it on the table just to remind them of the blood stain that was on their house. So that, so it is, you know, wow. I, I, I would be curious what the gender split is, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if women and men see the issue quite similarly. It reminds me of that great scene in Kill Bill where Uma Thurman has exacted revenge on one of, her, one, of, one, of the, one of the people on her list, and her little girl sees that her mother has just been killed, and Uma just tells her, one day you're going to have to come kill me. It's just, it's just that's the next step. And you know, uh, there's talk of uh, Kill Bill 3, which is going to be about that story. Uh, that's awesome. I love Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> okay, so. So we find, that, we find that about a half of baseball fans find this acceptable. And then we asked them how many thought it would be acceptable in, in, the, uh, in the National League to just directly hit the pitcher. Right, so that's not collective punishment. Right, only about seventy percent of people think that that's acceptable. So basically, among the seventy percent who think it's ever okay to throw a baseball at someone, you know, five out of seven of them think that it's also okay to throw it at a person uh, who's just on the team. If if that's the only if that's your only shot you've got, right? Um, I'm honestly and, surprised it was that low. That there were only 50% of the people thought it was acceptable because – Well, it's in, it depends on – you know. so we're just sampling fans outside the, the club and there's a lot of casual fans. There's a lot of, of course, rabid fans right. in Boston, but there's a lot of folks who go because their company's got the ticket. But when we, we later did a follow-up on an online baseball forum and now you're talking – you know, it's postseason. Right. Your team's out of the mix. Right. Uh, but these people are still out you know, making their points on the base. So these are, are real rabid fans and their endorsement goes up uh, substantially. I would imagine, right? If you're a real baseball fan, it's not even just acceptable. It's practically obligatory. Obligatory, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But so the final step of all of this, which was, I think, uh, the interesting part for us, is that we asked those people who are endorsing the, the collective punishment, who say you should go after the teammate, is the teammate morally responsible for the original hit? And the answer is overwhelmingly no. But would you say, is the pitcher responsible, morally responsible? And it's important that we're saying morally. We understand right, he's not right, – he right. didn't throw the ball, right? right? But is he morally responsible? So they'd say the pitcher is definitely morally responsible, but the teammate isn't morally responsible at all. And the interesting thing about that is it's showing that 
these baseball fans didn't check their morals at the door. They understand that you're not hitting a person who's morally responsible. It's not about moral responsibility. It's about protecting the team. And like Clint Eastwood says, deserving's got nothing to do with it. Well, okay. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with Fiery Cush. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizard. We're talking with Fiery Cushman about a study uh, he published in the, what is it, Journal of Experimental Psychology? Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. There Social Psychology. So yeah. you have to you have to forgive Tamler. He's not a scientist. <laughs> that, that much is obvious. <laughs> is there peer review in philosophy? I'm curious. <laughs> First of all, as a, as social psychologist, I don't think you t- you two need to be uh, throwing stones right now. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, just because sometimes science gets faked doesn't mean it's not science. <laughs> you guys are like just like maybe a hair above creationists now. That is the believability. <laughs> Well, first of all, neither Fiery nor I are, are are really social psychologists, so we're allowed to distance ourselves a little bit. But really, all, what are you guys? Um, see, you should read our bios or something, dude. <laughs> um, uh, so I actually switched to social psychology in the middle of my PhD, but I went in as a developmental psychologist, and uh, and I never, I, I don't know. I, I, so I yeah. I went in as a cognitive psychologist. I went in as a comparative psychologist. Doing monkeys came right. out as a developmental psychologist. Mm. I think but, that you know the old the old the old lines are falling. Everyone yeah, there's no good psychology. category. Yeah, yeah. You can't categorize us. Yeah, it, we're, it's, we're, all, <laughs> it's all fraudulent. It's just yeah. you know whatever. You but know. I did I did want to say before we start up and actually Tamler, you're gonna get you're gonna get to some some listener feedback that we've gotten that's that's been awesome. But uh, I I did want to say I was just joking about not being a baseball fan or not knowing about baseball. I'm actually a, a Yankees fan, so we'll uh-huh. just leave it at that. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I did. You're a La- like- oh, that's right. You're a Lakers fan and a Yankees fan. I like yeah. winners. <laughs> You're bandwagon. You're a bandwagon fan. Okay, okay, that, that actually makes sense. All right, it's only been uh, a few days since we posted our last podcast, so we didn't get much listener feedback. But I want to mention a couple <laughs> at Dagsaurus. And Dag Soros is a stand-up comic in Norway. Uh, he, he tweeted both of us saying, I fucking love your podcast, sirs. And I love you, Dag Soros. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> now, I went to his website, He uh, and he has some videos of some of his stand-up, stand-up comedy on it. Obviously, I can't understand a word of it. But it looks very funny. <laughs> I wonder, actually, if, if we did a study where we coded uh, for the nonverbals of a stand-up comedian um, in another language, if we could distinguish really funny ones from not funny ones. Just that would be a good experiment. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, right. You put, you put up Louis C.K. and then you put up, I don't know. I guess the you'd have to the problem is you'd have to find somebody that everybody agrees is not funny. Like you can't put up Dane Cook, even though you know, <laughs> I, I don't think he's funny. But you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it would be I think it would be nice to have just all sort of sort of local stand-up comedian. Uh, you know, the backdrop is the brick. Yeah, and, and, and one to- thing that I think neither Dave nor I understand is that it seems like our audience is primarily. Or maybe exclusively Norwegian, <laughs> yeah, or or some some other country. Yeah. So, so that and then we have another. We don't have time to get into this, but we got a nice email that was asking some some really interesting questions about utilitarian and the Kantian debate that we had and. Uh, yeah, and if, a if bunch of episodes. If back. time and resources were unlimited, we'd just keep Fiery on to talk about that because uh, Fiery's actually done some some interesting work um, he, on this and gave a talk yesterday 
uh, largely about the base, the, the psychological roots that might underlie some of our intuitions in, in these domains. So we, we, oh, we'll that's revisit cool. that. Let's talk if we have time. Let's talk about that at the at the end of the podcast because I want to hear about that myself. Getting back to the so so the, the primary result, as I understand it, fiery from this paper, is that while collective punishment is endorsed as acceptable and maybe in some cases obligatory. At the same time, you don't hold the player who's being hit in retaliation, uh, you don't hold them morally responsible for the original infraction. That's right. So this makes sense to call it punishment. Whatever it was. Now, it's interesting that you quote uh, a couple of times the desserts got nothing to do with it because you didn't ask the 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 people the subjects who you asked right the participants in the study you didn't ask them whether the person deserved to be hit you asked if they were morally responsible for what was for the original infraction do you think if you asked them what do you think do you think if you asked them did they deserve to be hit that there would have been a difference in the results well it's a good question you know I- it, part of what's so hard about this kind of research is separating out what's actually driving people's judgments from the rationalizations that they come up with after the fact. And I'll give you an example. It turned out that if we asked people first whether they were morally responsible and second whether they should be punished, then you find that there's no relationship between the two and they don't think he's morally responsible. If you ask First, whether he should be pu- that I mean, I say punished, but really whether he should be hit by the baseball. So, oh, so if you say was he morally responsible, then you say should he have gotten hit? They they're less likely to say he should have gotten hit. No, it doesn't change what they oh, say okay. about getting hit. But the point is, they say he's not responsible, right. and there's no relationship between responsibility and getting hit. Whereas, if you ask first whether mm. uh, he should get hit. And then you ask whether he's responsible. Suddenly more people are saying he's responsible Uh and there's a big relationship between the degree to which they think he should get hit and the degree to which they think he's responsible. What that suggests is that they're just rationalizing after the fact. They just said he should get hit. It sounds kind of creepy to say he should get hit if you don't think he's responsible, so they're willing to nudge around what they say about responsibility. And I think there's two interesting positions that you could take then on the question about deservingness. One is, yeah, they might say he deserves it, but they're just saying that because it sounds dumb. It's, it sounds like they're being inconsistent or strange if they say that he should be hit, but he doesn't deserve to be hit. Uh, at a certain level, it sounds yeah. like the, the sentences are just expressing the very same idea, right? Right. right. And then, but then a separate question is, well, maybe there's a concept of deservingness that isn't connected to the concept of moral responsibility. Like um, a concept of... I I had it coming or something like that. Not necessarily that I'm responsible in the but 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 it it was it was the right thing to happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you an example of this fiery. Uh so uh, John Cruck who's uh who was a hitter for the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, he, to- he told this story on this uh, show, Mike and Mike in the Morning, which is an ESPN radio show. So uh, the batter before him, he hit a milestone home run, uh, you know, like his 100th or 200th home run or something like that. And he was so excited that when he came to home plate, uh, you know, you trot around the bases when you hit a home run. Dave, are you taking notes? Are you paying attention? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, a, and some running involved. And he did a cartwheel. Uh, when he crossed home plate. Wow. wow. <laughs> now, that is a, baseball, just the smallest, tiniest thing that you can do is a sign of disrespect. If you hit a home run and you look at it for more than like a half a second, that's considered a sign of disrespect. You can't just, just stand there like in a Superman pose. Right. Like. <laughs> yeah. it, it, and, and doing a cartwheel over home plate, well, uh, that's just – that's so beyond the pale that, that it's crazy. So now Kruk was the next batter up, and and he just – he comes up there, and he was appalled by what the guy – by what his own teammate did. And, and so now he walks up to the plate, and he just – he just knows he, he's getting hit. And he just uh, himself and just crouch. <laughs> And so he just asks the catcher. He just says, "All right, where where is he going to hit me right now?" 
And the catcher just says, if I were you, I wouldn't dig in too much. Like, uh, (laughs) first pitch was was like at his head, pretty much. Uh, And he had to dive to the ground. He didn't get hit, but he had to dive to the ground to try to uh, avoid it. Okay, so then there's the question of a lot of times when you're when someone throws at your head, you charge the mound and start a and start a fight. But he says, I wasn't going to charge the mound. He says, this is what he's telling Mike and Mike. He says, I wasn't going to charge the mound, but, and these are his exact words, because I deserved it. And then he said afterwards, if anything, I'd charge the dugout, uh, <laughs> which means like to fight his teammate for doing that to him, yeah. essentially. So That's interesting, yeah. So I mean, it, I would have said, I, I w- you know, I can't contradict his own words. He knows best what he's thinking. It would have made all the all the sense in the world to me if he had said, I understand the position that the pitcher was in. It's what he had to do, and this was just my role in the situation. But it, but I have to say it surprises me, and, and maybe it means we need to go back and do some more testing that he would have actually said he deserved, he deserved it. it. It's, you know, there's this really – and Fiery points to this issue, which is, is, which is something that I think is, is sometimes at tension between philosophers and psychologists when talking about some of these, these studies and these concepts, actually. Uh, you see it a lot in, in, free, in studies on free will. Philosophers are always like – really wanting us to to use more appropriate concepts and narrower concepts to and tap to, to use language precisely yeah to use language precisely but the truth of the matter is that it's unclear a whether people know as fiery said what's driving what's driving these judgments but b you you'll always find that if you give people if you make the different distinctions for them, you can sort of eke out effects. So as, as far as says, you can eke out order effects, for instance, um, give, because you've essentially taught them something about the concept by putting one question before another one. Um, and it's unclear whether or not we're actually tapping into the, norm, the normal processes when when we ask them a whole bunch of things like the difference between responsibility and 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 deserving and blame and and wrongness and sometimes we have to put it in there and fiery's actually done some good work showing that one one way you can distinguish this is to see what what correlates with these judgments and you can show that that some of these answers correlate differently with sort of uh, outcomes and intentions but it's actually quite hard because what you often find is that everybody's sort of answering the same thing. If you give them a list of related concepts, they just sort of circle. If they think that the guy's kind of a, a, of a jerk and he kind of, if, if there's something that going on, like maybe he deserves it, they'll just answer kind of six and six and six out of seven on all of those questions, on all of those items. And I don't think that we get very much good information about the distinctions that people have. There are lay distinctions between things like justice and and, pu- and well, punishment. But why why couldn't you why couldn't you run the same study but ask whether the person deserved it? You know, you could do it on the Likert scale, uh, or you could just do yes or no. You could and absolutely, but I, I, one problem is I'm not sure if if you got a difference what that difference is saying because it sounds like you're just. Admitting that, I mean, you're just claiming that that people, uh, pe- by asking them, it's evidence that they're actually making this distinction and that they have this distinction in their mind. And and it may just be that asking them, uh, they pull some other association that they might have. I mean, I, I, here's another way that I would put it. We, 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 in this study, we show two clear ends of a spectrum. One end of the spectrum, should you throw the ball and you get... People, uh, you know, and as you say, when they're rabid fans, overwhelmingly they think you should. At the other end of the spectrum, do, do you, do, you know, the question about moral responsibility, it says really if we make the central focus here morality, does your moral theory say that that this guy owns, you know, some, some kind of responsibility for the event and people are saying no. Now, deserving is going to fall somewhere on the spectrum between those two things and it would be interesting in its own right to know where desert falls. Right. But at least you've illustrated that whatever is causing people to say you should throw the ball at his head, it's not this crazy different theory <laughs> about moral responsibility. They've got the same theory about moral responsibility inside the stadium as they do outside the stadium. Uh, and so you're going to have to appeal to some other set of psychological processes to explain where that judgment about throwing the ball is coming from. So a couple of things then that I want to challenge you about that. What's odd about this is what you're saying in this paper is essentially 
endorsing a hypothesis. I had no real evidence for it, but it's a, 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 a the hypothesis that I raised in the original paper, which is it's not about moral responsibility in these cultures. It's about a, it's 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 about something else. It's about a kind of normative pressure to respond to to offenses against your group or your clan, but. I sort of changed my tune in the in the book that I did. My whole argument in that book is that people have ac- across cultures different understandings of the conditions for moral responsibility. So actually now this paper while once a friend of my views is now an enemy of my views. So I want to so I want to challenge a couple of things. You write that and and I'm quoting now from your paper, nevertheless our findings suggest that underlying psychological differences between cultures that practice collective punishment and cultures that do not could be more apparent than real. Rather than originating from a psychological commitment to collective responsibility, collective punishment may instead originate from more pragmatic concerns dictated by the social and ecological factors described above. Uh, The presence of fierce competition between well-defined groups, strong regulatory mechanisms within groups, and the absence of an effective superordinate authority. So... First of all, you did not poll people who are in honor cultures, right? Boston fans are not honor culture people. And so I don't see what evidence this gives towards the view that people in other cultures or honor cultures have the same side of psychological mechanisms. Yeah, well, so first of all, I should say that you're absolutely right. And and that's why... The, the very first word you said was nevertheless. And the reason that sentence started with nevertheless is because what I say directly before that is right. this is not a very good source of evidence about what people in, you know, turn of the millennia Iceland or, uh, you know, 18th century Montenegro were thinking. <laughs> this is just a bunch of baseball fans in, in Boston and New York. So I agree with you. Or now, you know, and I think it would be really interesting to run this exact same study in Japan, for example, big baseball fans and see if you got a difference there i i would predict that there that there would be a difference but you're right i I, and it's true you qualified it but but the reason that i think that it's relevant the reason that i said nevertheless and then went on to make some claims is because it's a kind of an existence proof right we've now shown that it's possible to have the intuitions about collective punishment that that is i shouldn't say the intuitions but really the practice of collective punishment that you see uh, also in these cultures of honor without a radically different view of moral responsibility and so before we might have just said a priori it seems really unlikely that anyone would kill somebody without thinking that they were morally responsible but at least now we know that they'll throw a heavy, hard ball at them at 90 miles an hour without thinking they're morally responsible, or at least that the fans think that's okay. So it's not, so so. Look, so yeah. you're right. We, you know, I think there are some cultures of honor close to home. They're not as easy to test as baseball fans, but if you look at gang cultures, mafia cultures, and then of course you can go into places where you don't have a strong state, and there are cultures of honor around the world. Then those would be great research projects to do. Um, but I think that this the, the hope is that this paper opens up a kind of space of possibility that wasn't so obvious before. Yeah, no, and I think it definitely succeeds in doing that. Believe me, I'm not trying to... Th- I, I love this paper, and I think that's right. And I think for a lot of people, this kind of collective punishment is completely severed from the idea of responsibility. I do wonder, and I remember mentioning this in the referee report, if there would also be any differences if you pulled the actual players rather than the fans. Hmm. So if you pull... And that's why, you know, the Kruk is sort of interesting on this. Although I think even Kruk himself probably would have said, well, I'm not responsible for... you know mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. you know because I think you know that that that's sense of responsibility the dugout. right yeah exactly, exactly. that's right that's, uh, can I ask yeah. can I ask a question that might be related to what you're about to say Tamler which is is there um, so we're talking about baseball teams and and maybe gangs or or corporations where these co- these collective entities are are in fact sort of 
intentional entities that that have a, a shared goal and and that their behavior as a collective is can be understood. So we it makes sense to say the Red Sox did this. Um, there are collective entities that are bound by by uh, other things that are are not collective intentions and actions, like families, where you you're bound by blood, but it's not. You don't have this necessarily have the same goals in life as your sister in the way that as a baseball team you do. So that it seems as if one thing that's possible is that we would be more likely to collectively punish intentional entities for for the behaviors that arose collectively as a product of those intentions. That we we understand that corporations have goals and sports teams have goals. Families don't have goals. And so so it's harder to say that it's it's easy it's easier for me to say the CEO of Microsoft should be punished for for uh, the behaviors of its uh, of its unethical accountants because they kind of joined this entity with the goals in mind and they share a responsibility for the actions of, of the other members in a way that that simply being being a member of a social group uh, might not that that might happen. Yeah, well, I, that's interesting. What do you think about that, Fiery? You know, I was just going to say that there's a lot of great evidence that suggests that that's the case. Uh, uh, Brian Lickle has done a lot of great work in, in on, on this topic, and it's got the worst name in psychology. It's called entitativity, right? Yeah. So the idea is the degree to which a group constitutes a coherent entity uh, can predict the degree to which they get punished. But, but, the that could be thing, sim- but that could be similarities across more than just the space of intention, collective intentions. Clint, no, and you're right about that. And part of the part of the difficulty. In, you know, Tamler's original argument, the one that he made in, in the paper as opposed to the book. Well, I'm sorry. No, Tamler's more recent argument, the one in the book that you might really have a fundamentally different concept of moral responsibility isn't needed to deal with things like corporations or, or governments because – there's there are voters and and in those t- you know you vote for corporate leadership if you're a, a stakeholder in the company you vote about what you new policy you think the company should adopt what policy the government should adopt or at least you could be culpable for failing to prevent that you know for yeah. not being the whistleblower who says right. this is the wrong thing right. to do and all of that falls within the scope of ordinary personal individual responsibility you as an individual should have blown the whistle or done something about it uh and so no that's absolutely right it's very hard to tease out when they're actually blaming the person for their role however indirect that role might have been it still could be that they're blaming them for that role so you know when i'm when i was looking for examples in my book I really tried to find cases where there's absolutely no connection at all, causal connection, even if you stretch. But it, it is, it's, it's, in a, it's, it's a really tough thing to try to tease out, especially with people's ability to rationalize. Yeah, just, right. just, just impute intentions onto people just because they want to blame them and they want to punish them for other reasons. And so I'm curious, Tamler, what was it that was an example of the kind of thing that made you change your mind between the paper and the book? What was it that convinced you that actually this really is about a fundamental Fundamentally different conception of moral responsibility. Honestly, and I and I, I just talk I, I talk about this in the introduction for the book. It was I was listening to the NPR program Day to Day, and it was right after the Virginia Tech shootings, and they were interviewing all these Korean. They were trying to interview Koreans uh, about the shooting because it was a Korean shooter that killed all those people, and the Koreans were. I mean, they they were so ashamed. They were trying to do everything to make amends. And they were almost explicitly, or actually in some cases explicitly saying, they felt responsible for what happened. Even, you know, this was like a Korean realtor who lived 3,000 miles away. He was in Los Angeles, and this took place in Virginia. And he still felt like he had to, that, that, that he was in some way just responsible and that just you know, opened my eyes to the idea that you know i'm looking through this through a very specific prism and a really specific prism like even more specific than most americans because philosophy and the philosophical literature that i was brought up with on this is so committed to the idea that it's all about control of the individual and and very specific kind of control too yeah it's not but even you know just really, the yeah I'll sorry go ahead what's really interesting that this example 
it connects to your point about the guy who said that he deserved to get hit after the cartwheel. Yeah. So here's a really interesting fact about, uh, about moral psychology. It has nothing to do with collective punishment. But it turns out that if you ask, say that, say that there are some people who intentionally harm a person and there's other people who accidentally harm a person. Who do you think feels more guilty? It's the people who accidentally harm the person. Mm. Okay? Yeah. Now, the, now, part of this is a kind of a banal thing that if you intentionally hurt a person, you've probably already rationalized to yourself why it's okay to do. But the interesting thing is that accidents make us feel so guilty. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if I was here and I spilled my coffee all over Dave completely accidentally, completely out of control. I sneezed or something like mm-hmm. that. I would go out of my way to show Dave how guilty I was, how responsible I felt. But from Dave's perspective, he's not thinking that I'm guilty or responsible at all. Yeah. And the reason that he doesn't think that is because he can tell that I didn't mean to because I'm expressing that. And I wonder whether – But also he probably a- had it coming. I mean, <laughs> I, I have done something in the past that, that merits this. Uh, <laughs> but I wonder whether that's a potential explanation for what's going on with the Koreans and what's going on with the guy that gets hit. It's really interesting that the uh, people who are saying actually there is responsibility, there's moral responsibility, are the people who are in the position of of owning that responsibility, right? And maybe they're feeling compelled to own that responsibility that no, that even somebody within a culture of honor wouldn't have attributed to them because it's what allows th- for a making of amends in the end. But what, right. now, right. That, that's Imagine one that, but, yeah, if you say nothing when you exactly. spill the coffee, all of a sudden I go from thinking that it was accidental to thinking, wait, wait a second. Wait, and getting indignant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You might have actually meant that. Yeah. That's right. right. But, but, but fiery, so... Let me ask you this, right? A student in my class brought this up. I thought it was a great example. Let's say I back out my car and I don't see that my neighbor's dog is there. And there's no reason for me to think that my neighbor's dog is there. And, you know, like, uh, it's not like I was being negligent. I'm going to feel, as you say, even though it was an accident, you know, I go over there to the to the neighbor's house and there's a crying 11-year-old boy who's, you know, that's his, his dog that he grew up with. And he's dead now. I'm going to feel terribly guilty. Right. And I'm going to feel responsible for the pain that I caused him, uh, morally responsible. Don't you think there's something appropriate about that? Like, don't you think I should feel guilty? Don't you think that 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 maybe we have it fucked up that that the idea that you should just excuse yourself because it was an accident might be the uh, the problem and not the the idea that we're mistakenly imputing responsibility to ourselves for accidental acts? Maybe we just are responsible for our accidental acts. Well, I I think that it's not necessary that there's a single concept of responsibility that bridges different perspectives in in a moral situation. So suppose I spill the coffee on Dave and you see the whole thing. There's three perspectives here, right? And it might be that the concept of responsibility that's appropriate for me as the guy who did the spilling and Dave as the guy who got spilled upon and you as the the witness of the whole event might actually be appropriately uh, distinguished. Right. And, and, and because I agree with you, like if I spilled this coffee on Dave, I really should feel guilty about it. It's important that I do. If I didn't, Dave would justifiably think I was a real cruel bastard. And yet it is I also think that it would be wrong for Dave to hold me responsible if I'm showing the appropriate guilt. And yet those two observations are incompatible. Either I'm res- either I should feel responsible and there is responsibility or Dave you know, Wait, why is that incompatible? I think – oh, I see. If you're showing the appropriate saying, guilt – so you're disconnecting guilt from responsibility. No, I'm saying I should feel responsible and Dave should not hold me responsible. And the only oh, way to reconcile that is to give up on the idea that there's an answer objectively about whether responsibility is warranted and instead assume that there's different standards of responsibility from the perspective of the victim and the perpetrator – and right. Th- that that could provide the answer that, that potentially we're misattributing these different perspectives on responsibility to cultures of honor versus Western culture, where the, the key cases that led to your shift in thinking from the paper to the book might be cases that are now suddenly adopting the perpetrator perspective 
or that we'll say the yeah. victim of retaliation <laughs> perspective rather than the target of you right. Know. So we all that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's nice. We all we all make we all make good use of this concept and every these concepts in everyday life. We just never point it out. We so has anybody, to your knowledge, done something like calling people's intuitions about? What it means to be responsible from this first person versus no, no. Uh, that'd be really that'd be really interesting to show because I I too have no. The only conflict comes when I am held to the to to defining responsibility in a way that 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 matches um, because my intuition is very much like I and I imagine that the South Cor- the South Korean person who said I was responsible would be super indignant if he was incarcerated <laughs> if he were incarcerated. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. Have you noticed how Fiery has just classed up this podcast t- to an unbelievable degree? No, I, 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 and I realized that I would have predicted it, and I knew it was going to happen. It's, it's, fu- it's, <laughs> it's funny because, from my perspective, I was thinking about how I'd been completely declassed by this. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, both the, those are very compatible yeah. observations. You know, you know, I just would like to point out this of this role that I happen. I think that I see myself playing every time I hang around Fiery in this group of scholars, <laughs> which is that the minute I walk into the room, everyone's like, "All right, man, Dave's going to say some shit." And then right. they stay quiet, and then they start saying some shit, and like Fiery will say some things that I'm like, "Oh wow, man!" And and it's just my mere presence that apparently is. It. They talk about responsibility. I am now like this this sponge that can soak up the responsibility for anything inappropriate as soon right. as I walk into the room. Well, what was I gonna do? Pizarro was there. Of course, I could say that <laughs> yeah. racist, homophobic. <laughs> but I also, but that's good. It was fiery, classed it up, but I also think he re- he resolved the issue. Don't you think? I I'm think that sure. I, I want to. I mean, like I, you talked about doing studies. I want to think about that from a philosophical perspective. You know, we don't have to do studies. Uh, fudge our data. But yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting idea that responsibility, just not just across cultures, but in each individual instance, is different depending on whose perspective you're taking. That's, that raises so many interesting questions about which one you go with when, when, when it comes to something like criminal punishment. I, in fact, uh, Dave and I did a podcast last time on restorative justice where we just we had trouble kind of focusing on the on the right issue until maybe p- at least halfway through. But but Dave, this might be another good example of why restorative justice, which brings yeah, the parties together. Abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that it, that that ha- had we recorded this podcast before the other podcast, we might have uh, actually seen the issues uh, underlying the the role. <laughs> there is something that's the, the role that the victim and the perpetrator are playing there has to do with responsibility in one sense of the term. And the idea that like a third party can give the right answer about the culpability or responsibility of right. uh, of a perpetrator might just be completely misguided. Right, and, and fiery say, spilling coffee on, on me is something that we have to work. It's obvious that we have to work this out. The sense of responsibility that he's communicating and the sense that I'm communicating. Uh, for somebody to step in and make some sort of claim about what happened, just it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Listen, guys, thank you so much. This has really been uh, – this is the best part of my morning yet so far. <laughs> it's fine, man. We, I hope we can have you back. Maybe when we talk more about consequentialism. And- also, actually, one last plea for the listeners. I think we should have like a sign-off, Dave. I don't know yeah, what it should be. Should. It sh- and, and that's the way it is. <laughs> or, uh, I, I, I don't know, like something, Fox, with, something, with, wiz- something with wizard in the title or something or like <laughs> – I gotta take a whiz. <laughs> no, or, no. So actually, <laughs> no, Red, not... Red Fox used to uh, end his stand-up comedy routines. Uh, Red Fox is a is a well-known comedian for his sitcom work, but he was a, a filthy stand-up comedian early. Well, in his Sanford career. and Son. He's yeah, the, the, awesome. Yeah. And uh, he used to he used to just tell his last joke and say, "I have to go pee and drop the mic and walk off stage," because <laughs> he did he didn't want to do that thank you and like fake applause thing, you know. <laughs> 
And he probably did. did. Yeah, All right. <laughs> Until we have our sign-off, join us next time and tweet us or post on Facebook, like us on Facebook. For God's sakes, rate us on iTunes, people. Yeah, yeah. Give us some reviews, even bad reviews it, about Tamler. And find if Fiery, if you're interested in Fiery's work, uh, you just Google Fiery, F-I-E-R-Y, Cushman with a C. And uh, and you'll find a link to his lab page at Brown uh, University and, and to his publications. And we'll link to it on our website as well. Thanks again. See Thanks, Fiery. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.